Hello and welcome to this edition of the Berlin Policy Journal podcast. I'm Henning Hoff, Executive Editor. In the last episode of 2019, we are focusing on Angela Merkel. Germany's long-serving Chancellor lost one re-election in 2017. In fact, she didn't really want to run for a fourth term. But the 2016 election of US President Donald Trump convinced Angela Merkel that she was still needed, especially on the world stage, to try and help steady what used to be called the West. However, whether Merkel will see out her full term, which runs until 2021, is now very much in doubt. On November the 30th, the grassroots members of her coalition partner, the German Social Democrats, or SPD, voted for two largely unknown left-wing politicians to lead Germany's oldest political party. Saskia Esken and Norbert Walter-Borjans are both vocal critics of the present coalition. If the SPD leaves, Germany might have a minority government run by Angela Merkel and her center-right CDU-CSU bloc. Or it might have early elections, which would likely result in a CDU-Green government with a new conservative or even Green Chancellor at the helm. By then, Angela Merkel will have left the stage. So what will be the legacy of Germany's first female Chancellor? Of the woman who, in so many ways, has been an extraordinary leader? Her most famous, if not contentious, quotation is Wir schaffen das. Or, we can do it. She said this at the height of the refugee crisis back in 2015 to reassure the public. It's not as famous as Wir schaffen das, but there's a passage from her Harvard commencement speech she made earlier this year that sums up her political beliefs quite well. They were formed, of course, during and after the fall of the Berlin Wall 30 years ago. Aber wenn wir die Mauern, die uns einengen, einreißen, but if we break down the walls that hammers in, wenn wir ins Offene gehen und Neuanfänge wagen, if we step out into the open and have the courage to embrace new beginnings, dann ist alles möglich. Everything is possible. Mauern können einstürzen. Walls can collapse. Diktaturen können verschwinden. Dictatorships can disappear. Wir können die Erderwärmung stoppen. We can halt global warming. Wir können den Hunger besiegen. We can eradicate starvation. Wir können Krankheiten ausrotten. We can eliminate diseases. Wir können den Menschen und insbesondere den Mädchen Zugang zu Bildung verschaffen. We can give people, especially girls, access to education. Wir können Wir können die Ursachen von Flucht und Vertreibung bekämpfen. We can fight the causes of displacement and forced migration. Das alles können wir schaffen. We can do all of that. Fragen wir deshalb nicht zuerst, was nicht geht und was schon immer so war. Fragen wir zuerst, was geht und suchen wir nach dem, was noch nie so gemacht wurde. So let's not start by asking what isn't possible or focusing on what has always been that way. Let's start by asking what is possible and looking for things that have never been done like that before. Angela Merkel, quoting her younger self at the end, read in English by a translator. The words were from the first political statement she made after becoming Chancellor, back in 2005. To discuss Merkel's legacy and what lies ahead for Germany returned to an American. My name is Tyson Barker, and I'm the program director and fellow at the Aspen Institute Germany, where I direct the programs dealing with transatlantic relations and tech policy. Welcome to the program, Tyson. 
Thank you. Germany um, is entering the twilight of the Merkel era. What do you think happened next? How do you see the things developing in the post-Merkel Germany? Well, Merkel's been quite an interesting figure in German political history. Obviously, she's coming into her, I believe, 16th year, 15th year, rounding out the 16th, going to tie the longest-serving chancellor with uh, Konrad Adenauer and, I believe, Bismarck uh, and Helmut Kohl, correct? You know, she's put a real cork in a lot of strategic thinking around Germany's position in the world. There are a lot of ideas out there. Maybe we can discuss some of them. But she's kind of put the brakes on evolving Germany's position globally, although the position has changed somewhat in Europe. Uh, the question is, what kind of vision can be articulated by the people who have a credible chance to succeed her? And currently, there are some, let's say, politicians, ministers in the second row uh, who are starting to articulate a vision. The question is, do they have that credible chance? Do we want to name names? Sort of, who is your sort of let's, secret secret favorite? Well, let's let's name names. I mean, I don't know if I have a secret favorite, but what I can tell you is that she has three ministers who are all articulating somewhat different visions for what Germany should look like in Europe and the world. The first, of course, is Heiko Maas, her foreign minister, who talks a lot about an alliance of multilateralism. He would like to couch Germany as really one of the leaders of the rules-based order and create an alliance of mid-level powers that. Really really preserve the status quo in the face of a panoply of new powers, big powers like China, Russia, and increasingly the United States that are trying to revise the world order. Uh, the problem with his vision, of course, is it still lacks clarity. It's still somewhat vague. Then there's um, Peter Altmaier, who is the economic minister here in Germany, also a member of her party, the CDU who has a kind of geoeconomic industrial vision for Germany's role in Europe and the world. And he's talked a lot about, you know, Germany needs to reclaim more assertively a kind of industrial policy that protects Germany's competitive prowess globally. He's talked about founding an Airbus for AI. He's talked about launching a major uh, European cloud project called Gaia-X. He wants to work within the Franco-German framework to establish this. But Up to now, there's no money behind his vision. Uh, and the third person is uh, Annegret Kamp-Karrenbauer, the leader of the CDU and current defense minister. And she's been making a lot of very entrepreneurial proposals, both dealing with Germany's operations in the field, on the ground, in places like northern Syria, and also within NATO. She has said that Germany does need to reach the 2% goal by uh, 2031 and provide 10% of NATO's assets by that same year. She has been, uh, let's say, criticized in the press because of certain questions about her political acumen. The interesting things about all three of these people is that they all come from the same state. They all come from the Tsarland, a very small state of about uh, 1.5 million. And when they first came into this kind of second row, I said, well, Tsarland is kind of like the deep state of Germany. They're going to articulate this vision, and it's going to be really based on the Franco-German relationship because, of course, the Tsarland borders uh, France, and they have a very strong French consciousness. Uh, but they haven't been successful, again, in articulate. well, they've been successful in articulating the vision, but not in having that credible claim to being Merkel's successor. And Merkel has not really allowed for that successor to emerge. So even though these visions exist, they haven't really taken root. Mm. Looking, looking slightly back, in what shape is Merkel leaving Germany? We had 
several good years economically. Has the government done enough to invest, for instance, in the digital infrastructure? Well, this is the thing about Merkel's leadership. If you look at, at growth right now uh, globally, within the European Union, Germany is the second worst performer, only performing better than Italy economically. And the reason is it has been one of the primary victims of the trade war. It has really been caught in the crossfire between the United States and China on so many issues. And the uncertainty that the trade war has caused has led to less purchases of high-end German products, autos, heavy machinery, etc. But the other thing about Merkel, and this has been a facet of her leadership over the past decade plus, even though we give her a lot of credit for Schritt for Schritt, step-by-step step thinking, she's not really a strategic planner. And if you look at the big decisions that have defined her chancellery over four terms, what they call the Energiewende, the big change in, in energy policy, or the uh, refugee policy, or even with, with regard to Russia, the big sanctions change where Merkel is really the powerhouse holding sectoral sanctions in place. They were all elicited by an action-forcing event, be it Fukushima, be it the MH17 shootdown, be it the German population's response to seeing the border closures in Hungary. And she responded to that very quickly, made a massive strategic change, and then sat on it. What she hasn't been able to do is this kind of long-term planning, and that has been a real blind spot for her in thinking about digitization. You mentioned the transatlantic um, relationship. It's obvious Merkel and Trump um, don't get along. They're sort of their opposites in so, so many ways. Would a new U.S. president improve relations with Germany and Europe again, or are the tensions between the two sides more fundamental? Well, there's the personality issue, and clearly that is an area where Trump and Merkel in particular have clashed in the past. And Merkel, to her credit, as a great student, has been adept at managing Trump to the extent that that's possible. But at the same time, there are structural differences in this relationship that are similarly articulated by the Democrats, including President Obama. There's the issue of the trade imbalance. There's the issue of investment in uh, defense. There is, and getting to the 2%, there's the issue of Nord Stream 2, the uh, Russo-German pipeline project, which has been a an issue of clashing between the Obama administration and Merkel as well. So there are a lot of kind of structural issues that are not going to change no matter who is in the White House. So what would you suggest uh, to a future German government in, in terms of sort of um, repairing the, the transatlantic relationship? What, what would sort of Germany and by extension Europe need to do to get on a better footing again? So I mentioned a couple of structural issues that will uh, remain in place no matter who is in the White House. But there are a couple of issues that, of course, will change. One is climate change. I think that anybody should assume that the United States will re-enter the Paris climate accords if a Democrat is elected. And the second is the Iran nuclear deal. Um, what can Germany do to help this relationship? I mean, some of these things have been articulated during the Obama years. One is taking hold of this Wales pledge that Steinmeier and Merkel agreed to in 2014 at the NATO summit in the UK and trying to reach that 2% goal because that is a great signal not only to the president but also to the American people 
that Germany is as committed to European defense as the Americans are committed to European defense. That would be one thing. And then the second thing, and I think a new German leader could try to push Germany in this direction, is greater investment in its infrastructure, greater public spending. Use all this savings, all this export prowess that Germany has built to invest in the German people, be it in education, be it in infrastructure, because that rebalances the global economy and shows Germany to be a responsible stakeholder in the way that the global economy works. You've been a long-term Germany watcher. You've, you've been working in Berlin for four years now. So what was the greatest surprise coming here and working here? So I was here on, obviously, the day of the U.S. election in November 2016 and read the headlines coming out. This even occurred to people at some of the watch parties, this idea, okay, well, Obama is going to leave the stage, Trump is entering the stage, and all we have left is Merkel. Merkel is the leader of the free world, this idea. And Merkel was very uncomfortable with this, but released a pointed statement after the election saying, we will work with the new president on the basis of the values that the U.S. and Germany have held for decades. Uh, very strong statement. Uh, a lot of people were watching that. And Merkel never really took up this mantle. She continued to try to, in the words of Ursula von der Leyen, lead from the middle. That was surprising to me. I thought that Germany would try more assertively to fill some of the vacuums created in the international system. So uh, I would like to see that in a leader, but I think with Merkel and given her political persona, that's just not going to happen. Could it happen with another kind of leadership? Or is it just in the, the German psyche or the German DNA post-war, that sort of inactivity or sort of a very cautious, cautious approach is just the way forward? People talk a lot about, you know, there are these sacrosanct principles in Germany, be it the idea of leading from the middle, being, be it the discomfort with global leadership, be it, uh, for example, a um, non-Keynesian monetary policy. Sorry to go into this direction. But a lot of these things that we think have existed forever and we create myths around actually have counterfactuals in German history. So if you look at leaders like Schroeder or Kohl or, or Schmidt, they took a very different style of leadership and really set Germany on a different path globally. So I think a lot of the things that we associate with Germany are actually characteristics of Merkel herself. Thank you very much. Thank you. For another perspective on Angela Merkel's legacy, we went to Constanze Stelzenmüller of the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. She is currently the Kissinger Chair at the Library of Congress John W. Kluge Center. A former journalist and sharp observer, she is perhaps the most prolific and often entertaining Germany explainer in the United States. We caught up with Constanze on the sidelines of the Kerber Foundation's 2019 Berlin Foreign Policy Forum. Constanze, what role has Angela Merkel played on the world stage? Was it ever fair to call her the world's most powerful woman? I think that that is actually quite correct. I think that in her fourth term, it's very clear that she is one of the most experienced, knowledgeable world leaders with an enormous authority. But at the same time, I have to also say, and I say it with sadness, that I think there are many problems now that are urgent and that she's leaving unaddressed. Such as? 
I think that Germany ought to be far more urgently involved in the question of the future of Europe, where our responses to initiatives by France and others have, I think, been lamentably unimaginative. We ought to be far more involved in the debate about the future of NATO, and we ought to be far more visible, audible, active in the Middle East, and obviously in the debate about what happens to world order when America is reluctant to lead. And there she has stayed almost silent. Has she been a role model, though, for women in international affairs? I'm sure she has. I think her very existence was an incentive and an attraction for younger women, uh, certainly for women like me, and I suspect for women younger than me as well. It matters to have women in positions of visible authority who lead calmly, competently, with courage. And she's done all that. So I think that in that sense, she's played an enormous role, despite the fact that famously she had to think before answering the question whether she was a feminist. Regardless of that, I grew up in a country where it was almost unthinkable that a woman would hold the office of chancellor or defense minister or foreign minister, and I note that we still haven't had a female foreign minister, and that mattered to the way that you thought about yourself. And I think for there now to have been a female chancellor and two female defense ministers really has an impact on how young women think about their career possibilities, and that's a good thing. It matters for young women to be able to see a viable path up the mountain. Now all we need is a female chief of defense staff. Thank you very much, Constance. It's been a pleasure, as always. Cheers. And that's all for this edition of the Berlin Policy Journal podcast. Thanks to my editorial colleagues, Siobhan Dowling and Noah Gordon, and to our producer, Susan Stone. Join us again in mid-January, when the podcast and our new issue of the Berlin Policy Journal, which you can read on berlinpolicyjournal.com or on our app, will both focus on the state of international relations. Increasingly, nations are locked into relationships that are both cooperative and competitive. In a word, we are living in a world of frenemies. Until then, goodbye. Thanks for listening.